Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk to Dr. Peter Adamson. You are most welcome, sir. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Peter, for those who don't know, is the host of the hugely popular History of Philosophy podcasts, um, which also appear uh, as a book series with, published by Oxford University Press. And I'll put the link in the description below to the podcast. They're definitely worth having a look at, actually. Um, Peter teaches at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, where he is professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy. Peter's research has mostly concerned philosophy in the Islamic world and its Greek sources, and he has published and edited numerous books and written dozens of research articles in this area. He says his hobbies include writing podcasts, watching Buster Keaton movies, and writing more podcasts. <laughs> they're, they're revealing hobbies. Um, today, Peter has kindly agreed to introduce us to the big picture of Islamic philosophy. And the distinction, uh, I think it's quite an important distinction, between Arabic and Islamic philosophy. So, Peter, would you like to take it away, sir? Yeah, okay. So that's a uh, difficult and much discussed problem. It's really a kind of debate about what to call this research field that I do. So if you think about a philosopher like Ibn Sina, so mm -hmm. he's uh, lives in the 10th to the 11th century, dies in 1037 CE. Uh, he's more commonly known in English by his Latin name, Avicenna. Yes. So he lives in Central Asia and he writes almost all of his philosophical works in Arabic. Mm. And he's a Muslim. Mm. So it looks like we've got a choice between saying that what he does is Arabic philosophy, meaning that he wrote in Arabic, right? So yeah. you, just as you might call uh, Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, Greek philosophy, even though it wasn't necessarily written by Greeks, right? Yeah, because he wasn't a Greek. Was uh, he? So he wasn't an Arab. He was a, a Persian. Right. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that so that's actually an important thing to bear in mind is that when we talk about Arabic philosophy, that doesn't mean Arab philosophy. So Arab mm -hmm. is a, I, I guess, an ethnicity, right? right? If it means anything. Arabic is a language. So when we say Arabic philosophy, what that means is philosophy written in Arabic. Right. Okay. Not philosophy written by Arabs. No. Because in fact, yeah. um, the number of major figures in the tradition who are Arabs is actually relatively small. The, probably the, the, the figure who's often seen as the first main philosopher in this tradition, Akindi, who lived in the ninth century, he was called philosopher of the Arabs because mm -hmm. he was an Arab. And that was kind uh, of an unusual thing. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that's Arabic philosophy, and it's a pretty simple idea, philosophy written in Arabic. Yes. And then we have Islamic philosophy, uh -huh. which at first glance looks like it might mean philosophy written by Muslims, although maybe it could be deeper than that, like philosophy that sort of centers around issues in the Islamic revelation or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we immediately get into some problems with both options. 
the problem the most obvious problem with arabic philosophy is that ibn sina wrote philosophy that wasn't in arabic he wrote one uh significant philosophical work that was in persian and although philosophy in the islamic world and actually spoiler alert what i'm eventually going to argue for here is that we should say philosophy in the islamic world so my books on this topic are called that yes so um because basically i want to avoid the problems of these two expressions as philosophy in the islamic world moves along like after ibn sina you have more and more works being written in persian not just persian also like ottoman turkish and uh other languages there's also syriac which has an important role early on and then has a kind of resurgence around the 13th century so um it seems kind of arbitrary to say arabic philosophy in, if that would in, for example exclude works that were written in persian mm -hmm. right? but islamic philosophy is problematic too in a couple of ways one is that if you think it means something more than philosophy written by Muslims, and you do think it means something like philosophy that revolves around core issues in the Islamic revelation, some of what Ibn Sina did fits that description. So he proves the existence of God. He's clearly trying to show that God, his philosophical conception of God sort of answers to the description of God in the Quran. He even quotes the Quran in this yeah. context, although he doesn't quote it a lot. But he does lots of other things too, right? So he does natural philosophy, he does logic, he does philosophy of the soul, all these different things. And most of the time, it doesn't look like he's that worried about religious issues. Mm. Um, religious issues tend to come in with Ibn Sina when he realizes that he's developed a philosophical view that might seem inconsistent with a religious doctrine. Right. But if religious doctrines aren't relevant, like say theories of place or time or logical syllogistic theory, then religion is completely irrelevant mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. Mm. But there's actually a worse problem for the phrase Islamic philosophy, which is that um, I would want to include, and in fact, in fact, I think any reasonable, reasonable person should want to include a lot of thinkers who weren't Muslims. Probably the best example is that Ibn Sina himself is reacting to a group of thinkers who are contemporaneous with him and earlier than him, because they, they run for about 150 years, who we sometimes call the Baghdad School. And this was a group of yeah. Aristotelians who were obviously centered in Baghdad. And th they had a certain approach to Aristotle, which he to some extent liked and to some extent didn't like. He's usually very critical of them, but he actually takes a lot from them as mm -hmm. well. And they're almost all Christians. So right. one member of the school, although his relationship to the school is a little bit murky, but apparently a member of the school was Al-Farabi, who's a famous Muslim philosopher. But everybody else in the school was a, was a, was a Christian. So can I just get clarified, Peter, that this is in Baghdad, obviously in the Muslim world, perhaps the capital of the time, I'm not sure. Uh, certainly, yeah, uh, yeah, um, Empire, yeah. yeah. Um, where you get a very large number of Christian philosophers, thriving, working, philosophizing, producing works and so on. I, I say that obvious, perhaps trite point, but it contrasts with some images of the Muslim world today that some people in the West have, I mean, uh, where, where such a thing might be a little bit surprising to have existed, where a flourishing Christian intellectual uh, community producing works uh, existed in the, in the very heart of the Islamic empire itself. And that, that's, yes, uh, that says something about the uh, Islam at that time, that it was quite uh, comprehensive and inclusive to varying degrees. Yeah. So they talk about the people of the book, right? So right. those are people who received a revelation 
uh, and that would include Jews and Christians. Speaking of which, it's not just Christians, there's also these Jewish philosophers mm. in the same context. So, for example, in Iraq, uh, roughly at the same time, a little bit earlier, uh, sort of a, towards the beginning of the Baghdad school era. So we're talking about the turn of the 10th century. You have someone like Saadia Gaon, who is a Jewish philosopher living in Iraq, having moved yeah. there from Egypt. So again, he's living in an Islamic culture. He's a philosopher. And he's actually very influenced by Islamic theology, even. But he's Jewish. Okay. Yeah. So, it so it seems to me that if you've got the Christians of the Baghdad school, like, for example, Yahya Adi, who are doing something very similar to what Ibn Sina is doing. And if you have someone like Saadi Agan, who's doing something very similar to what Islamic theologians of his time are doing, calling them Islamic philosophers mm. is very strange, mm. right? Mm. Because they're Jews and Christians. But uh, sort of excluding them from this, the historical narrative of this kind of chunk of the history of philosophy seems inexcusable because yeah, they're yeah. right they're just part of the story right so they're embedded they're embedded in the whole kind of milieu of, of islamic yeah. thinking as well yeah interesting. interesting and you can make the same argument when it comes to other areas of the islamic world notably spain or well, yes spain and portugal so the iberian peninsula yeah, yeah. or what we might call al andalus yeah so out there you have like the high point of medieval jewish philosophy happening in muslim spain under muslim rules so you have Maimonides, uh, famously. Maimonides, actually, of course, he fled Muslim Spain as a child. Yes, yes, it's true. So he might be the exception. Exception rather than the rule. But he ended, up, he ended up in Egypt, didn't he? He ended up in the Muslim world, though. He didn't end up yeah, anywhere so else. His, yeah. yeah, career really peaks in Cairo. But mm -hmm. again, he's living under Muslim yeah, there yeah. Yeah. Um, in Fatima, Egypt. Yeah. Uh, so you've got like, uh, you know, Ibn Daoud, uh, uh, Judah Halevi, you've got a whole bunch of Jewish philosophers uh, right. who are living in Andalusia. And so again, you it seems kind of bizarre to say, well, these Jewish philosophers who are living in an Islamic culture and engaged with Islamic intellectual debates, they somehow don't count as part mm -hmm. of the story. I mean, actually, the it, it is true that in scholarship, there tends to be a kind of division between people who work on Jewish philosophers and people who work on Muslim philosophers, even though a lot of the philosophy written by Jews is in Arabic. Hmm. So it's not, it's not because some of them are Hebraists and some of them are Arabists. I mean, obviously it's good to know Hebrew if you want to work on Jewish philosophy, but I have published things about Jewish philosophers and I can't read Hebrew because I was publishing about works written in, in Arabic. Hmm. So, and in fact, I would go, so th this sounds like, okay, the problem is basically there's a kind of counterexample or like it leaves something out. But I think actually in a way, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about just recently, I think that calling it Islamic philosophy obscures a, a more deeply important fact, which is that actually until Ibn Sina comes along, so from the time of the Greek-Arabic translation movement, when all the philosophical works of Aristotle and so on are translated into Arabic. So that's like, from the 8th to the 10th century. Yep. So from then until Ibn Sina, I think actually most intellectuals, most Muslim intellectuals, thought of falsafa, this thing, philosophy. So they mm. took the word from Greek, right? So they thought yep. of falsafa often as something that Christians do. Mm. So it was, it was very strongly associated with Christians because Christians had translated it. It's, it's always almost always Christians who are translating 
from Syria. Because Christians are very interested in explaining the doctrine of the Trinity using Greek philosophical concepts, you know, the Council of Nicaea famously and other councils and, and describing the attributes of God. We're talking about the Philo of Alexandria. He's not a Christian, but he's hugely influential on Christian uh, philosophy uh, in subsequent centuries. So, yeah, th- there was this great tradition already in the Byzant- in Byzantium in the Eastern Roman Empire already just there. And along comes Islam, of course. And yeah. 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 And so when they're looking for people who can translate Greek into Arabic, they basically hire a bunch of Christians from Syria mm. to do it, to make mm. a long story short, <laughs> because, because of that like ongoing tradition you were just talking about, which yes. was first in Greek and then in Syria. Right. So you have translations from both Greek and Syriac manuscripts into Arabic. So that because the translators were Christian and a lot of the um, sort of specialist scholars of Aristotelian thought, like these people in the Baghdad school were Christian. I think that um, it's not it's not that only Christians were reading Aristotle and thinking about him, but it was thought of as foreign and and it was thought of as kind of Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whole enterprise. But then when Ibn Sina comes along, things change. So after Ibn Sina, everybody thinks of falsafa as that thing that Ibn Sina did. Yeah. And in fact, to be a philosoph, a philosopher, starts to mean it means someone who is in agreement with Ibn Sina. And really, exactly. distinctive. So he he has such a, a titanic impact on the, on the intellectual world that the the very term philosophy can identify with a man, an individual, in, yes. a, a named individual. That's extraordinary. Is if he redefined the whole thing in his own personality. Extraordinary. Absolutely. And as, as I always say, the best sign of this is actually a sort of um, backhanded compliment paid to him by Al Ghazali, who's a famous theologian who died in eleven eleven CE. Great death date. Very easy to remember. It so, is. That's how, that's how I always remember it. It's easy. easy. Yeah. 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 Uh, so he writes this work called Tahafid al-Falasifa. Yes. It's usually translated incoherence of the philosophers. And it's an attack on Ibn Sina. Basically. <laughs> and that shows you that he thinks that falsafa is whatever Ibn Sina thought. Right. And actually then what Ibn Rushd out in Muslim Spain, Averroes in Latin, the great commentator on Aristotle, when he responds to Ghazali, and writes Tahafut, uh, Tahafut, so yeah. the incoherence of the incoherence. Refuting the refutation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Refute, exactly, refuting the refutation. What he says is, well, you're you're often right that Ibn Sina is full of it, but that doesn't matter because that's not what's definitive of philosophy. What's definitive of philosophy is Aristotle, not Ibn ah. Sina. But that was kind of an old-fashioned thing to say. So by that time, like in the 12th century, in at least in the Islamic East, in the heartlands of the Islamic world, You've got um, philosophers being, I mean, philosophers, philosopher, are thought of as people who are kind of in the train of Encina. Can I just ask you something? You said something very interesting that hadn't occurred to me before. You're talking about the Baghdad school and the the number of Christian uh, thinkers there, philosophers who were uh, preoccupied with Aristotle and and his thought. But this is long before, is it not? Perhaps I'm wrong. Is it long before Thomas Aquinas? And I mention him because in my mind, at least in the West, we think of him particularly, he's not the only one, but Thomas Aquinas as providing the great synthesis or the the great combination of Catholicism, Christian theology and Aristotelian ethics and and to some extent metaphysics. But in fact, this this, um, concentration or this synthesis or this dialogue between Christianity and, and Aristotle existed, predated Aquinas by some centuries, it seems. But it, it is not really part of our consciousness in the West, is it, so much? We tend to think of the Latin Christian side and Thomas Aquinas and 
I'm not really aware of what's going on down there in Iraq so much, perhaps. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, if you think about it, it starts even earlier because uh, in late antiquity, you have someone who people have, who know about medieval Latin philosophy would have heard of for sure, Boethius. Yes, Constellations of Philosophy, isn't it? Or is it? Is it? Yeah, he wrote the Constellations. Constellations, of yeah. He also wrote commentaries on Aristotle. Yes, very readable. You can still read it. Out. I recommend people to read the Constellations if you're interested in that. It's actually quite readable, I think, for in today's world. Oh, yeah. for sure. And that's definitely the thing by Boethius that everyone should read. Yes. <laughs> he also wrote some highly technical. And oh yes. Don't recommend them. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> in your taste, it depends if you like yeah. Aristotelian logic, but he writes some commentaries on Aristotle's logic. Yeah. And as you can see from those commentaries, he's very closely connected to the school of um, Aristotle commentators in Alexandria, Egypt. Right. So, I mean, that's still under the Roman Empire. So, we're not talking about, I mean, this is like fifth, sixth century we're talking about here. So, we're not talking about Islam yet. No. But uh, Boethius is only one of several Christians who were carrying on the project of the pagan commentators on Plato and Aristotle. So you have commentators like Elias and David, for example, David the Invincible, Mm. great nickname. Great. Uh, And they are basically colleagues of pagans who are, and they're all commenting on Aristotle together. And then you have further commentaries written in Syriac that are kind of a perpetuation of that tradition, but in a Semitic language. And then when Arabic comes in under Islam, mm. you just have a furtherance of that whole project. So actually the Christian appropriation of an engagement with Aristotle starts in late antiquity and goes right up through the whole time, through and past the time of, of Ibn Sina, way yeah. before we get to Aquinas and high scholasticism in the West. That's true. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary, yeah. So um, about Ibn Sina, I mean, what, what, what are the defining, if one can put it in this way, what are, what are the defining characteristics of his thought as a philosopher? What was his major contribution? What is he known for? You know, what was the watershed moment pre and post Ibn Sina? What, what, what was he about? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a difficult question to answer because he innovates in pretty much every area of philosophy. Mm. The only area of philosophy where he's not considered to be hugely exciting is like ethics and political philosophy. Yeah. He has had things to say about those topics and they're interesting, but they're not kind of earth shattering. Mm. Whereas in logic, in physics, in philosophical theology and metaphysics, he's, he's extremely innovative. And actually, maybe if you just wanted to say one thing about why he's so important, it's precisely his whole attitude towards philosophy. So the prior to him the philosophers who were engaging with this greek material that had been translated yep whether they're christians or muslims so you've got like muslims like kindi and farabi you've got christians like yahya nadi and the other members of the baghdad school but they're all like sort of presenting greek philosophy and trying to show that it's relevant for solving philosophical and theological problems maybe but they're very much like they write commentaries on aristotle they present themselves as basically carrying on the tradition of Greek philosophy. Whereas what Ibn Sina does is he sort of steps back and says, all right, well, I've thought about this and I agree with Aristotle about this and this, but I disagree with him about this, 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 this. And so it's like incredibly sort of um, self-consciously original and innovative. So that's one thing that's very important about him. I guess if you wanted to highlight just one philosophical idea, it would probably be what he does in metaphysics with the idea of existence. Ah. So the Arabic term here is wujud, mm-hmm. 
And he makes two very fundamental distinctions, which then shape metaphysics actually right down to the 20th century in the Islamic world. Hmm. So first he says that there's a distinction between what he calls essence and existence. So essence, there are several words for essence, but um, for Arabic speakers, we're talking here about mahiya or hakika or thought. Um, there's some other phrases he can use for it. He also calls it shaiya, thingness, which is interesting. You might come back to that. So that's essence. And then there's existence, which is wujud. So the difference here is basically between what something is and whether it exists. And as he says, um, you you can tell. So one example he gives is um, taken actually taken from the Islamic theological tradition. So if you think about black or blackness, you can know that black is a color, whether or not black exists. Mm. Okay. So it belongs to black's essence that it's a color, but it doesn't belong to black's essence that it exists. Right. Is, is this kind of slightly similar to Plato's theory of forms in some way? You get the the, the abstract idea or essence uh, of something? I would say no. No, indeed. Because I can see why you're saying that. Because yeah. You're, you're thinking, because Plato's forms sound like they might be essences considered in themselves or something. Apart from any particular instantiation of them in the world. Right. Uh, that, was the, that was the kind of contrast I was drawing. Uh, but I'm not suggesting he was a Platonist, as you say. But anyway. Yeah, he, he actually, he would vigorously deny that what he's doing is postulating platonic forms because he would say well when i talk about the essence of humanity i don't mean that there's some kind of perfect exemplar of humanity up in a realm of platonic forms mm -hmm. what i mean is that there's the essence of humanity in you and in me and in any other human right. and that we can also have the essence of humanity in our mind as a kind right. of mental idea so actually that that's something else he says is that existence comes in sort of two flavors there's external existence and mental existence right. so human can exist out in the world or it can exist in the mind these are two different ways of existing right. so any but anyway that's the first distinction yeah. he makes and the and he's very interested in the question of which properties belong to a thing in respect of its essence so for example i'm um rational due to my essence because humans are by definition rational mm -hmm. but i'm bald accidentally so mm -hmm. baldness it comes like sort of from the outside to my essence so in order for human to be bald human has to first exist as a particular human and then be bald right or i have to think of a bald human that would do it as well but human in its own right is neither bald nor existent right okay Okay. So that brings us to the other distinction that he makes, the second one that I mentioned, which is the difference between what he calls contingent existence and necessary existence. Uh, and this, of course, from, from this, you get the famous uh, argument for the existence of God from contingency, the contingent argument, which is uh, being extremely popular and influential in Islamic philosophy um, ever since. Right. It's, it's one of the few proofs of philosophical proofs I know of that has its own nickname. It's called which means the demonstration of the truthful. Right. So that before we can go into the proof if you want, but that but first we need to understand what that distinction actually means. Yeah, sorry, yeah, of course. So we've got contingent and necessary. So contingent is mumkin, necessary is wajib. So we've got mumkin al-wujud, so being contingent of existence, 
and we've got wajib al-wujud being necessary of existence. Okay. Yeah. So the difference would be that, um, again, go back to what I was saying about black. So black is a color just by being black, right? Um, but black doesn't exist by virtue of being black in its in and of itself, blackness in its own right, so to speak, is neither existent nor non-existent. So some other factor, so I would call this a cause, a cause needs to come along and decide whether it exists or not. Sometimes in the later tradition, especially, this is called preponderation. Tarji um, is the Arabic word. So like a scales. So the hmm. essence in itself is has to be preponderated to exist or not exist. Interesting. Okay. So that's something that's contingent. Mm-hmm. Something that's necessary in itself would be something whose essence guarantees that it exists. Mm. And then the question is, is there any such thing? Is there something that necessarily exists or necessarily exists in its own right, right? Not because it was caused to exist, but something that in and of itself, in and of its essence. So in Arabic, you would say bizat or bilmahia. Um, in and of its own essence, it's guaranteed to have existence mm. or to exist. And the answer is yes, and that's God. And he mm. has a proof for why that must be the case. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I, I, I've got to ask them, what, what, what is the, re- how do you get from a necessary, how do you get from contingency to a necessary, well, you've explained how you get contingency to necessary being, but how do you demonstrate the existence of a necessary being then? How does that come about in his, th- in, in his thinking? Okay, so the, well, that would be the proof, right? So yeah. to make a long story short, basically the way the proof works is he says, well, there's three options, right? So things are either impossible, contingent, or necessary. Mm. right so an impossible thing would be like a round square Mm. okay he i guess thinks that that round squares don't have any essence at all right but sort of loosely you might say well a round square is something whose by its very nature or by its essence if it had one excludes that it exists right necessary being would be something whose essence guarantees that it exists contingent being would be something whose essence leaves open whether it exists right it has to be ponderated okay so um, for example, you're a contingent being. Yep. So what that shows us is that some there must have been some cause that explains why you exist rather than not existing. Notice, by the way, if you didn't exist, we would need a cause to explain that as well. Ah. So there are okay. causes for non-existence as well as causes for existence, because in your in and of your essence, it's open, right? You could yeah. go either way. Exactly. So then what Ibn Sina does is he he says, well, okay you've got a cause and maybe your cause is your parents or something. I have, they so. have a cause, which yep. is your grandparents and so yep. on, right? Just for the sake of argument. Actually, he wouldn't say that, but for the sake of argument, let's say that that's right. right. Um, so that's fine. And it looks like every contingent thing could have its own cause. Yep. It could be some other contingent thing. Yeah. Right? So back through the generation, so to speak. And then he says, well, that's fine. But what about all of the contingent things taken together? So roughly this would be like the universe, right? Mm-hmm. The whole universe of, exi- of contingently existing things. If you take them together as an aggregate, as he says, that aggregate will also be contingent, meaning yeah. it has to be preponderated to exist. It doesn't have to exist. It's not necessarily existent. It's yeah. contingent. Yeah. Yeah. So actually this is, that's exactly right. So this would be a, in a way, it's a technical version of asking the question, why is there all of this? 
or why is there something rather why is there something rather than nothing which is Wittgenstein's famous question of course right yeah where did it all come from where did it all come from so that kind of very intuitive question is being translated yeah. by him in very technical terms into this question mm -hmm. if we take the aggregate of all contingent things and consider that aggregate as an object in its own right it itself will be contingent right because its parts yeah. are all contingent so it should be contingent yeah. So it must have an external cause that causes it to exist, and that's God. So you couldn't have another con contingent cause of that totality of contingency, because that would simply be a yet another contingent f uh, f factor that would become part of that bigger whole again. You, you get an infinite regress. So he's saying you can't have an infinite regress, and there has to be at some point, well, not at some point, there has to be a, a, an, under, a, an undergirding metaphysical non-contingent being to bring into existence the contingent world of contingent beings, I suppose. Yeah, I think there are actually two thoughts there that we might want to separate, both of which Kavinsina says. So one is, if we take the aggregate of all contingent things, we yeah. already took all the contingent things. Right. So okay. any cause outside it obviously isn't contingent. Okay. As, would, right. as you just said, right? I, I Another mean. thought would be, well, let's take all the contingent things and just have one more outside. Right? Yeah. So you've got the universe and then something outside which is and call it zeus <laughs> okay zeus, this is not, that's not even seen that's me so call it zeus just for the sake of having a name for this thing and mm -hmm. we say oh zeus is contingent but it causes all the other contingent things oh. right now avicenna will say okay but where did zeus come from exactly. so it's zeus is contingent right so again zeus has to be ponderated to exist rather than not existing and then we get into a regress argument right Okay, so he can, he does both. He does both. Uh, well, the idea Zeus would have been in the aggregate in the first place. And then if you don't like that point, you want to have this kind of vertical chain of contingent causes. He says, well, that won't work because you're going to have an infinite chain of causation that's simultaneous. So that and that won't work because you'll have an infinite an infinite chain of causes, which mm -hmm. violates uh, rules against infinite regresses. So that's how the proof works. So yeah, our Western philosophers like William Lane Craig, are they now seen as the champions of the Kalam cosmological argument, which is a variant, a different name for the same thing? Does it have its roots directly in Ibn Sina or is it more uh, well, of a opposite kind of? I would say not quite. So it's more like um, Ibn Sina and, the, and William Lane Craig are responding differently to the same historical antecedent. Right, antecedent. So right. Ibn Sina is not, doing all of this in a vacuum so he's thinking about aristotle who gives him for example the idea of infinite causal regress as being impossible mm. but he's also thinking about islamic theology or kalam and since this is blogging theology it's good that we're talking about them eventually yeah we got around to it <laughs> so they so the kalam guys the mutakalimun the theologians yes. Al -Ghazali, they have the idea that the cosmos is created because it has it has features that begin and end right so their idea is that if the universe is made of things that begin and end the universe itself must begin and if it begins then you must meet a creator who caused it to begin so to me that's the classical kalam argument right okay now the, so i would draw a distinction between what they're doing what msina is doing because msina doesn't think the universe began he thinks the universe is eternal. Like Aristotle, like Aristotle, of course. That's what like Aristotle. Aristotle. Yeah. Exactly. And so he's not going to try to prove the existence of God on the grounds that the universe started. He doesn't even yeah. think the universe did start. Right. 
he rather is saying, well, take everything that's contingent, even past, present, and future, if you want, put it all in a pile and ask where it came from, right? So it does, it's not, the point isn't that it began. The point is that it might not exist. Right. It's, it's a contingent. Way. It's contingent it's rather contingent. than necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it turns on the contingency of the universe rather than the beginningness of the universe. Wow. I'm just wondering if the universe is eternal, why does it need, it doesn't have a beginning, therefore, then why, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because uh, I believe that we now we now know the universe does have a beginning because of the black hole, because of the, the Big Bang, uh, of course, but that's kind of jumping ahead. But, uh, but um, it, it does seem paradoxical that an eternal universe is contingent, therefore needs a creator. Why couldn't it just exist eternally? And I know some uh, modern cosmologists or atheists might, say precisely that it doesn't you don't need to look beyond itself for its cause it simply is in itself its own eternally continuing to exist reality yeah um, that's exactly what Ghazali said so Ghazali oh, really? in, in coherence of the philosophers this is exactly the line of critique he runs so he says well if you think the universe is eternal then you think that god's not really a, an agent cause for it right mm-hmm. uh, because he didn't like voluntarily make it begin and so that doesn't count as creation but what Ibn Sina would say, and here we come back to the fact that your parents aren't your real cause, <laughs> he would say that the genuine cause of something isn't really that which makes it begin to exist and then like walks away, right? The way you might make a cake and then go off to work, right? And the cake is still there. He would say that a genuine cause is something that preponderates something to exist rather than not existing for the entire time that it exists. Mm-hmm. okay so your cause is going to be something that's not just making you start to exist but is holding you in existence mm. right so for example um the parents of a person can die and the person keeps existing mm. and so he would say well the parents clearly aren't the cause then because the parents mm. are gone and the person's still here so something's something's continuing to make this contingent thing be existent rather than non-existent Mm-hmm. and there, there's a long story about what that would be in his cosmology and so on but like ultimately the ultimate cause of that would be god yeah. so actually he thinks that there's a fundamental mistake in the kalam he's taking a lot from kalam mm-hmm. he, he also thinks there's a fundamental mistake in the way they think about god's relationship to the world because they think that god's job is to make the world start to exist and then mm-hmm. continue to make things start to exist yeah. Like when you're born, he makes you start to exist, maybe. Yeah. Or actually, even when I do this with my hand, he makes the motion of my hand exist, according to the Motikali Moon, right? Yeah. Whereas Sina's God is preserving everything in existence. It's more like a, he uses this language of emanation that comes from ancient Platonism. Yes. Yeah. He thinks of the world as like a light that's emanating out from God permanently. Yeah. Yeah. God is, a, is, this, the, is like a fountain or a lamp from which everything else is flowing forth and is dependent on him permanently. And so Mm -hmm. if you think of creation or divine causation that way, then actually, you know, that would work regardless of whether the universe has been around forever or only for a limited time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, By the way, just because one might wonder, well, what, okay. So why does he think the universe has to be eternal? And that takes us back to the other side of the coin, which is that, Whereas things in the universe are contingent, God is necessary. Yeah. And God is not just necessarily existent for Ibn Sina, but everything about him is necessary. Right. Because if anything about him wasn't necessary, 
it would be contingent and then a cause would be needed to come along and preponderate him to be one way or, rather than another. So for example, imagine that God is sort of sitting there not creating the universe and then he starts creating it. So mm-hmm. now even Cena says, okay, well, what made him change? So because God's not supposed to change. God, in, in that kind of metaphysics, God is perfect. And one of the, de- one of the attributes of perfection is, is so it doesn't change because if, if it changed, then it's not perfect because it's become something other than it once was. Yes. So how can God create um, in, in that kind of metaphysics? I mean, yeah, although actually, I mean, what you say is totally right. And Encino would agree with it, but it's actually in a way not the fundamental issue because the re- there's a reason he's perfect and a reason he doesn't change, which is that he's necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's his necessity drives the whole philosophical theology in Encino. So what, because what he would say is like, suppose that God isn't perfect. Well, that would mean there's something he's lacking. Yeah, which means he sort of needs some external cause to come along and perfect him, mm. or he, potentially that could happen. But then God would have a cause, so it wouldn't be necessary. Or mm. imagine that God goes from not creating to creating. Well, then some cause would be needed to explain why he changes. So, so the point isn't that I mean, I mean, he is unchanging according to Messina, but that's not the fundamental assumption because he he would say there, there's a reason why God is unchanging, namely his necessity. It's not the other way around. It's not that he doesn't change and that's why he's necessary. It's that he's necessary and that's why he can't change. Because if he changed, there would be some cause that was making him change. I see that. So uh, can you just be- briefly explain for Abin that he was, after all, a Muslim. How does he understand God creating the universe? Given what you've just said about God's unchanging perfection, I I, I foresee a problem. And also, it's, it's rather odd because the Quran is very clear that God does create and creates ex nihilo. You know, mm-hmm. he just says, "Let it be," and and it is, and doesn't have this kind, doesn't have these philosophical conundrums. It seems very straightforward. And yet, for Ibn Sina, perhaps predominantly influenced by Greek philosophy, it then becomes perhaps a problem for him. And I know Al Ghazali roundly criticised him for this and other egregious uh, intellectual sins but for Ibn Sina how, how how does God create if that's a, a question yeah. he addresses yeah I mean you're, you're exactly right and again this is exactly Ghazali's complaint so whereas the Kalam tradition I mean they actually that's one of their favorite lines from the Quran right when God wills that oh, something yeah. be he says to it be and it is exactly so there's this word of command kun in Arabic and they said, well, that shows that there are these things that are non-existent. Mm-hmm. God kind of points at them and says, okay, you start existing. And then there was a big debate actually about the status of these items that were non-existent, mm-hmm. and whether they're things or not. So actually, you remember I said before that one of the words for essence in Ensina is shaiya. So the word shai is thing. And he's probably referring to that debate about whether these non-existent items are things right? by using that word shaiya. So anyway. Um, so since God's not responsible just for making things begin, mm-hmm. you know, you're right to ask, well, what is he doing? <laughs> yes. And the answer is that, um, he is, uh, grasping himself intellectually. Mm-hmm. So he's a perfect mind, mm-hmm. you know, just like Aristotle's God was a perfect mind. Mm-hmm. And then because of this perfect activity, as a kind of automatic byproduct, the universe exists. So, right. so, it's not, so did you just, just clarify, you said the word automatic there. I think it's quite important, isn't it? So uh, automatic is uh, almost involuntary. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't involve the will mm-hmm. 
exercising a conscious decision be, and it is. Obviously, I'm juxtaposing it here or contrasting it with the Kranich depiction of creation. Um, and it, it just strikes me that, I mean, maybe this is a psychological question rather than a theological one, that why, and I don't actually understand this, but why would a Muslim, Ibn Sina, choose to go down that particular path when the Quran is quite explicit, I would suggest, it seems obvious, explicit, in the way God does create. It seems it, it, to offering a, a non-Quranic model, one that is a variance of the Quran. Yeah. And why would a Muslim do that? Uh, I mean, you, you said that he was a Titanic, I said he was a t- Titanic figure, and I think in one of your podcasts you suggested that he, that was a polite way of saying he was very arrogant, but then you went on to say that he was justified perhaps in his self-estimation as a, you know, very great thinker. So did perhaps his own genius eclipse perhaps even God's revelation, if I can put that, put it that way. I mean, I I guess he probably wouldn't like that description. No, I know, I know. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to understand why he would, you know, the elephant in the room is very obvious, it seems to me from the Quran says, and yet he deliberately kind of goes down a different pathway. And I'm just trying to grasp why a Muslim would do that. I just don't get it. Yeah. So he, so first thing is, I mean, again, this is exactly what his critics said. So Ghazali, Fakhreddin Arazi, other theologians all blame him for saying that God's not a voluntary cause. Hmm. Um, but first of all, he says that's not true. All right. Okay. Because, and here we get into a question of what voluntary means. Right. So um, the, the word muhtar is what they use to describe a voluntary agent. And Ibn Sina would say that something's voluntary if it is doing something because it's identified something as good to do mm-hmm. and nothing is forcing it to do that thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for him, and he actually argues this for this explicitly, for him, voluntary action does not require there to be multiple alternative possibilities open. So it could be that there's only one thing God can do, but he's still doing it voluntarily because he's identified it as the right thing to do, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, that is good for him because that means it's consistent that God both be acting voluntarily and necessarily. And that's mm-hmm. what I meant by automatically before. So when God grasps himself, he grasps that from his own power and goodness, the world should come forth as a kind of, corollary almost or byproduct of his self-directed activity self-directed okay. activity and then that just happens permanently and eternally uh sort of the way that like a conclusion follows necessarily from the premises so god, god, god is innately the fecundity of god god has this uh, to use this if i'm trying to understand it correctly god has a superabundance of creative energy and creative power and that kind of flows out from him into the creation of a world independent of him mm-hmm. uh, i'm using different words here and concepts i know i'm just trying to grasp so it, it's almost inevitable but nevertheless it's it's part of the the free outflowing of god's creative abilities so this yeah. is there's an element of inevitability about it but it's not entirely it's not um it's not necessary i mean he i suppose he could not have done it but yeah, but, but actually, every, I would agree with everything you said until the last part. Uh, so okay. It does use this emanation language. Yeah, I'm trying. Okay. Um, so the mm. word in Arabic is fayed, which sounds like kind of overflowing, you know, fountains overflowing. That kind yeah. Of I mean, that all that stuff about like the fecundity of God's reality and so Yeah. I don't think Ibn Sina would disagree with that necessarily. But that's, that's not, not where, that's not where he's coming from. So I'm trying to grasp. Uh, okay. The okay. primary idea is that 
it's good for the universe to come out of God. So it does. Okay. God is perfectly good because God is perfect. Right. Yeah. That's really the thought. Let's become the two more straightforward Aristotelian, the good, yeah, yeah or Neoplatonic, maybe. Yeah, Neoplatonic okay. language because okay. he's influenced by Neoplatonism. Right. But I don't think that that's really like what's driving the theological view. What's driving mm -hmm. the theological view is the idea that God is necessary. Mm -hmm. And then he would say that if you had a different conception of God's will, by which God is doing one thing rather than another, and he could have done either. He would say no 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 because then god would be contingent yes. and then there would be a cause needed for <laughs> explaining why god did this rather than that right. I, I was hoping to move on for ibn sina but I, I i fear i can't because he's such a uh i think i think a great fecundity to keep on using that word um and there's this other thing i wanted to ask you about the floating man thought experiment which mm -hmm. i think is it's proven to be such an uh, interest to to thinkers over the centuries could you just explain what this floating man thought experiment was and, and what, why it was such a great interest sure yeah so yeah. okay so this is also sometimes called the flying man thought experiment although yeah. it's actually not clear what the dude is doing but in the air <laughs> Okay. So, so we've got a dude, he's in the air. That's, that's, yeah. that's we got, we got doesn't need to be a dude either. So, True. I mean, Ibn Sina describes him as a man, but of course it could be a woman. Of course. Or a child. But I mean, okay. So, um, but let's follow Ibn Sina by imagining it's a man. So, the, it's a thought experiment. So, we're asked to imagine that God creates a fully grown adult human. So, actually, maybe it couldn't be a child, but it could be a woman for sure. So, a, a fully grown adult in midair and the reason why the person is in midair is that Messina doesn't want them to be in contact with the ground because if they were in the ground they'd be feeling something whereas this person has their limbs and fingers splayed out so they're not in contact with anything furthermore he says that the person is veiled so that in other words they, there's nothing for them to see it actually might be enough if it was just dark mm. um, but they, they're not seeing anything and there's no smells or taste. There's no noise. Okay. He actually even specifically says there's no wind. So you couldn't feel there's no air resistance against the body, which would then suggest it was of a certain bodily configuration either. Yeah, and that actually is maybe why you don't want him. You want him to be flying or floating because if he were falling, yeah, there'd be wind void, resistance. Like void, air, yeah. like air. Mm -hmm. He'd have wind resistance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the point is, basically, this is a, just a long way of explaining that the person is in complete state of sensory deprivation. Yeah. Okay. So then we ask ourselves what this person could know. Mm -hmm. And in particular, we ask ourselves whether this person would know that he exists. Mm -hmm. And Ibn Sina says, yes, he would. And he, I think he just expects you to find that very strongly intuitive. Because you'd be conscious, so because you, your 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 mental your consciousness would be there, even though you wouldn't be aware of the external world. Allegedly, right. you'd be conscious. This, this this is so eerily familiar in some ways to Descartes' cogito ergo sum and his meditations, where he deliberately strips away all all things that could be doubted in the world. The one thing he couldn't doubt was the fact that he doubted. And, yes. you know, I think, therefore I am. The very fact that he was conscious meant that he must exist because he was conscious, even when he was doubting. And from that, he allegedly through the ontological argument, they refounded the whole of uh, epistemology and found foundations of science and whatnot. And it's a completely different subject, but it just struck me there was a, 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 a curious similarity between the two. 
yeah there's it's a, con- a comparison that people have drawn often oh, right. um and you can i can see why so it makes sense oh. but it is important to bear in mind that this has nothing to do with overcoming skepticism no no i, I absolutely yeah. so that i mean the epistemic limitation here is not that we're sort of doubting everything that we can doubt mm. it's that the flying man or floating man has no access to any information yep so that's why all the knowledge is eliminated, right? Yeah. It's nothing to do with skepticism. No, no, no. I would just say this is there's a certain curious similarity in some ways. No, definitely. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing that they have in common is like, is there something that you cannot help but know? And that thing is in both cases, the fact that you're aware of yourself. That's the point of similarity. But the reasons how you, the steps leading up to that and the argument behind it is different, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're not done. So, because we haven't got to the point, gotten to the point. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So the point, because the point is not just to like alert us to this interesting fact about self-awareness. The point is that even Sina thinks that this shows that the self is not corporeal. Reason being that, as he says, if you're aware of something and not aware of another thing, that means the two things are not identical. So for example, um if you were um president of the united states and i'm aware of you but i'm not aware of the president of the united states then you're not the president of the united states right so he points out then that the flying man is aware of his self but not aware of his own body Mm. in fact he doesn't even know there is such a thing as bodies no right so that shows that his self is not his body and his self is his soul so this is a, turned out to be a proof of the incorporeality of soul or the immateriality of soul. The existence of the soul. Fascinating. So this is, this is, a, this is a very seductive argument. And it's completely opposite to the materialism that seems to predominate today about you know, how the consciousness is seen as a kind of epiphenomena, a byproduct of the brain. You know, the brain itself is the, anyway, that's a different subject, but uh, is the, the polar opposite to Ibn Sina's uh, outlook there. Um I mean, I'm conscious of the time here, and I don't want to uh, exhaust, uh, you know, to take advantage of your your good time. But um, I just want to very briefly touch on Kalam, and we've we've mentioned briefly uh, Al Ghazali's great critic of Ibn Sina's thought, and then there was a further response criticizing the critic. But but he proved very controversial in the Muslim world, in the Kalam theologians amongst the, the, theologians. But he still remains incredibly influential in Islamic thought. And also in the West uh, as well, uh, uh, we mentioned very briefly um, Thomas Aquinas, but uh, but subsequent to that, and, and areas like medicine, you never think you any, any relevance, but in so many areas, this polygod, this extraordinary human being, has influenced global civilization, um, and and the West until relatively recently, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a really good thing that you're emphasizing his uh, work in medicine. This is mm-hmm. sort of an unbelievable fact about him. Yeah, that he was both the most influential doc, uh, philosopher and and one of the two most important and influential doctors. Which is the one, Galen, I suppose, the Greek philosopher. Well, I, I mean, definitely Galen, but I meant in the Islamic world. So there's also oh, okay. Abu Bakr al-Razi, who I actually just oh, yeah. wrote a book about recently, who okay. was also a very influential medical writer. Right. But maybe even seen as more influential even, even than him. And they both have a big impact on European medicine. Mm. So, to, I mean, to the point that someone like Descartes, who we brought up just a minute ago, would have been reading Ibn Sina's medical works and knew about him, right? 
So he was on the shelf still in every medical library in Europe in the 17th century. In the 17th century. Yes. Well, and this guy, I even seen it, died in 1037 AD, exactly. or the common era, I mean. So yeah. we're talking about centuries later. So and like, for example, um, people like Leibniz and Spinoza oh, yeah. are still sort of reacting to Nicena's ideas in metaphysics because all oh. this stuff about existence and like necessity and contingency and so on, mm-hmm. that becomes extremely important for shaping the way metaphysics works in late scholasticism and then in the um, in the early modern period. Mm-hmm. But, but actually the funny thing is though, even though he's like massively influential in Christian Europe, he's even more influential in the Islamic world mm-hmm. because in the Islamic world, as we were saying before, he basically comes to define what Fadsafa is. And here, I think it's important. So the, the reason I keep calling it Fadsafa and reminding us of the Arabic world, word is that there's a sense in which philosophy in the Islamic world includes more than just Fadsafa. Right. This is quite controversial and it kind of depends who you ask, like which mm-hmm. scholar you ask. But since you've got me as your guest, you can. I'm sure you're right, of course. <laughs> so, what I would say is that Kalam had always had quite a bit of philosophical content in it. Mm. So, you have, so, think about what I mentioned before, like discussions over the status of a non existent object, which has not yet been created by God. Mm. Well, that's a, in a sense, it's a question about the Quran. So when the Quran says, when God wishes something, he says to it, be, and it is. So that's it. They're trying to understand that line in the Quran. But it's also a question about metaphysics, right? So what is the status of a non-existing thing? Or actually, is it even a thing? That was the debate, right? Is it real? Yes. Is it real before it exists? That's That was what the debate was about. And some said yes, some said no. So there, and that's only one example. As we already said, they had proofs of God's existence. They think about ethics and freedom and... They have a theory of substance and they're atomists and you name it, right? So lots of philosophy going on there. And in fact, I always say that if scholars from European culture had gone looking for philosophy in Arabic and if Aristotle and so on had never been translated and we only had Kalam, we would just think of Kalam as philosophy from the Islamic world. Mm-hmm. That We would say that's their philosophical tradition, right? But instead, what happened is that we have we have falsafa, which comes in from the Greek translation movement, and we have kalam, and they're kind of speaking different languages at first and have somewhat different problems, but they're also talking to each other. Mm. And then one of the reasons, maybe even the reason, actually, historically speaking, why Ibn Sina had such a massive impact is that he completely integrates the concerns of kalam into his philosophy. So, for example, all this stuff about existence directly answers a question like that question we were just mentioning again what is the status of a non-existing thing so he would say well you can consider the thing in and of, in, in and of its essence and if you consider it that way it neither exists nor doesn't exist so that's a thing that does not yet exist it's just an essence but it doesn't not exist either right mm-hmm. it's neither existent nor non-existent that's the answer to your question mm-hmm. and the motokali moon were like oh do we agree with that? And then some do and some don't. Right? But that, and that's just one example. So also his proof of God's existence. They love his proof of God's existence. Yes. They get really excited about it. They modify yeah. it. They yeah. criticize it, blah, 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 blah. So what that. happens is that you have like literally hundreds and hundreds of years where Kalam, in fact, various schools of Kalam engage with Ibn Sina's ideas and create different kind of combinations. So some are more critical than others. 
almost everybody uses him at least to some extent mm. and even agrees with him to some extent so for example his logic mm. becomes extremely influential gosh um and people you know they might criticize his theory of soul for example but they're mostly pretty happy with his theory of soul it's all this stuff about god's necessity that really causes problems yes i can see why i mean i don't i don't know how you judge this but in the west by which i mean kind of the latin west i suppose western europe and ultimately the americas and so on do you think ibn sinner's contribution has been overlooked obscured has it been kind of ignored because of his origins both religiously and ethnically or, uh, and if that is true, is that still the case today? I know you're, you, you're, you're writing about him, you've written about him, you're lecturing about him, but is, is he finally getting his place in the intellectual map of, of the world in the West, or, or is that still yet to happen, do you think? It's an interesting question. I mean, I th- so he's not a household name in a way no. that Aristotle and no. Aquinas are. No. And that's probably unfair if you think about the fact that I mean, ultimately, like by world global standards, he's a more important figure than Thomas Aquinas. Wow. I mean, with all due respect to Thomas Aquinas, who <laughs> is very important, but obviously he didn't influence the Islamic world, whereas Insina did influence the Christian world, right? And um, so like by that standard, I guess you could say that he's less famous than he should be. Um, wow. But on the other hand, I mean, certainly um, for for a long, long time, if not always, anyone who knows anything about medieval philosophy knew that Avicenna, which is what he was called in Latin, was a hugely important and influential figure. And in fact, all you need to do is read Aquinas because he keeps referring to Avicenna by name like every other page. Right? <laughs> so you can't overlook or you can't miss that Ibn is an important figure if you know something about medieval philosophy. But once you kind of get beyond like specialist scholars or people who have taken classes on medieval philosophy and you get out to the level of like the the public so to speak they're more likely to have heard of aquinas than avicenna because um you know the catholic church thinks of aquinas as its most important theologian and so on but of course it's different in the islamic world right so if you're from iran you're Hmm. at least as likely to have heard of it and seen as to have heard of aquinas so it's just a cultural thing because he was from, I suppose, do they call him an Iranian? But he was a Persian, I suppose. Uh, yeah, that's an, it's actually, I, I was just noted. So every time I go on social media and say something about Encina, yeah. it, it triggers a debate yeah. about whether he's a Persian. Yes. Right. So he clearly was not an Arab. No, well, that, that we know. Yeah. But he he's from modern day Afghanistan. Ah. Okay. So the first line of his uh, autobiography my father was a man of Balkh. So Balkh is a city. He grew up in a village near Balkh, and Balkh is in modern-day Afghanistan. Okay. Well, where, where, wasn't it, where did Al Ghazali? Wasn't he born somewhere? Al Ghazali is from is from um, modern-day Persia. Or sorry, oh, he's like more Persian as it were. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so he was more of a. So he's from, from Tus, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where that is in today's um, geography, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So he's from. So I mean. Ibn Sina is from further east right. than, than Ghazali. Right. Now, whether you call that Persia is depends on what you mean by Persia, right? Yeah. So he was a native Persian speaker, for sure. He wrote a book in Persian. And he moved around a lot in a region that includes modern-day Iran. Right. Right. But, but he's moving in 
I mean, I, I would, I guess I would think of the, the space he's moving in as something more like Central Asia. So you've got a speaker of the Persian language who's moving around in Central Asia, which is very marked by classical Persian language and culture. So that's what we've got as a fact. Yeah. Now, yeah. whether you then want to call him Persian or not, probably depends on your political orientation more than any historical reality. So it's, there's certainly good reasons to call him Persian. But yeah. I think a lot of the time people who call him Persian are motivated to do that because they want to claim him for like Iranian culture or something. Oh, and yeah. that's not a great reason to call him Persian because, <laughs> you know, he, like the, 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 if, like if you asked him where he was from, I think he would say, well, I'm from that region, you know, near Bug, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm not sure it's that meaningful a question in the end. Totally random parallel, speaking of T.S. Eliot, you know, is T.S. Eliot American or is he British? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, let's look at his life. It's a bit complicated, but he was both uh, at different times in his life, but he didn't, didn't identify as American. He identifies as British later on, but no, he was the only, I don't know why I thought of that. I just uh, I could, resonate with that. I mean, I, yeah. so I'm American, but I haven't yes. lived in America for uh, how long? For tw 22 years. So. Wow. May, may I ask which part of the States you're from? I'm from yeah. near Boston. Oh, oh, cool. But you can't really hear it anymore. My, my Boston accent, to the extent that I had one, has sort of vanished. Although I never really had one, like, I, even in high school, like, my all my friends said ka instead of car, but I always said car. I always had my R's. You sound almost English, especially your time at King's College in London uh, has Russell. I take that as a compliment coming from you? No, it was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, T.S. Eliot became, you know, ultra English, even though, even though he was American at the end of the day. It was not that you have become ultra English. I think I have one of those accents that you get when you're American, but you've spent a long time abroad, sort of flattens out and becomes less mm. distinctively regional. Yes, it's, it's, it's less obviously um, from the States. Anyway, that's totally not the point. Um, well, um, <laughs> that might be a, a fitting time to conclude. I mean, I could personally go on for hours, but we're not because it's uh, it's actually about 38 degrees here in the south of France. I'm getting up here too in my study. So. Yeah, and you're, you're in Munich and it's kind of, it's heading your way. And um, I know it's also very hot in London um, and getting more hot. It's going to be in the 40s here forecast in a couple of days. 41, I've seen forecast. Which is challenging. <laughs> yeah. um, you can return to this video and watch it in January. I think. Exactly. <laughs> and feel the heat from the, the screen. Yeah, that would be cool. So um, thank you very much uh, indeed, Dr. Peter Adamson. And uh, I, I do recommend people watch, uh, as I say, his hugely popular History of Philosophy podcasts uh, on YouTube, not on YouTube, on, on the web, which I will link to. Uh, in the description below. I mean, you cover so much, basically the history of philosophy. I could say, did you, you don't do the 20th century, do you? Do you, hit, do you talk about Wittgenstein at all or anything like that? Or Not yet. So I'm, I'm yeah. still in the 16th century, although oh. there's also the Africana series. So I do have oh. a sort of spin-off series on other philosophical cultures. And in the Africana series, we've been covering the 20th century. Amazing. And so only in Sina himself, have you, have you published or are you publishing work, a book on, on his thought? Yeah, actually, so I edited. Is it okay if I show So I edited a collection of papers about Ansina, uh, which is that book. Excellent, thank you. And um, in oh, I don't have it, but uh, the, um, I, I did a very short introduction to philosophy in the Islamic world for Oxford University Press. 
Yes. And that series, I just finished writing the very short introduction to Ibn Sina. Ah, uh, yeah, I've read, the, I've read the, the, the first one you mentioned by the, the, the very short introduction series. Where, where I've read that particular one by you. Yeah, they're like only this big. Yeah, so, and they're, they're that thin. <laughs> yeah, so actually, um, like what we were just talking about, for the most part, it, it was so fresh in my mind because I just wrote about it in this little book. Yes. So I yeah. had to try to get everything Ibn Sina did into like 30,000 words. Amazing. Yeah, these things are incredibly condensed, uh, and uh, uh, and they your books are very readable. Um, so uh, yeah, I do recommend those as well. So um, well, uh, thank you. As I say, thank you very much, uh, Peter, for your time. And uh, do uh, listen, I should say, not watch. Listen to your history of philosophy podcasts uh, linked in the description below. So thank you very much, Thanks Peter. So much. Thanks, right. so much, Tom.